if you have been looking at your bulletin, you know we've bitten off quite a bit this morning. We're looking at a whole chapter of Mark, but I think you'll see that it hangs together. So we're going to consider this chapter together, and uh, let me read it for us first, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time together thinking about it uh, together. That's what Mark writes. Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, wars do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, 
each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would meet us in your word and speak to us through it. We pray that you would hear, we would hear your voice and that you would speak a word of comfort and challenge and encouragement this morning. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are a people who are very interested in the future. We listen to climatologists tell us what the impact is going to be of global warming. We listen to epidemiologists who tell us what the threat is from future variants. We listen to economists about the likelihood of a recession coming. We listen to pollsters to tell us who the front runners are for the next election. But we're very interested in the future because we want to plan accordingly. We want to save for college. We want to save for retirement. We want to save it up if a recession's coming. And in this passage, Jesus talks to us about the future and how to prepare. The future as in not just the next couple of years, but the future as in the end of the world. Jesus here addresses us in what has become known as the Olivet Discourse because it was delivered on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem looking at the temple. If you've been with us, you know that we just finished a section in Mark where Jesus endured a lot of conflict with the Sanhedrin in the temple courts. And the disciples have just left the temple courts with Jesus. And one of the disciples says, look, Jesus, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. Uh, the temple was built by Herod. It was very uh, impressive. The Jewish historian Josephus writes this of the temple. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. That was a temple. It was a building of dazzling beauty. It was the pride of Herod. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. No, no wonder the disciples are very impressed as they look at the temple from the outside. But not so Jesus. He's not swept up in awe like the disciples. He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. They will all be thrown down. And the disciples, I'm sure, are a little shocked by this, and they ask the obvious question that you or I would ask. When is this going to happen? When will the sign be that all this will be fulfilled? And Jesus' answer is the Olivet Discourse. It is his last extended teaching before the cross, so it is significant in that respect, his last address to the disciples before he dies. It is also one of the most difficult, complex, confusing sections in the Gospel of Mark, which you probably heard with a little consternation as I, as I read this. And one of the top-level questions of this chapter, which, again, you've probably had as you listen to me read it, is what time period is Jesus talking about here? 
is he talking about the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70? Or is the focus the end of history when Jesus returns? I think the answer is yes. He's talking about both. Jesus is talking, obviously, about the fall of Jerusalem and the, and the temple in verses 28 and to 30. He talk, talks about the, this fig tree metaphor. And he says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So he's talking on one hand about the things that are going to happen in the generation of the disciples, in their lifetime. And yet, of course, by the end of the passage, he's talking about his return at the end of the age. He's talking about both, and that's what makes this chapter confusing. He weaves them together. He's talking about, on the one hand, these things, the immediate future in their lifetime, and he's also talking about those days, the ultimate future, when he returns. And Jesus weaves them together, I think, because he sees that they're related. The destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem is a prefiguring and a paradigm for his return. And so he's looking at both events like you would look at a mountain range from a distance. So you look at a mountain range from a distance. You're driving towards a mountain range. You, you see peaks that when you're right up on them are, are miles apart from each other, but from a distance they look close together. And the same is true, I think, in Mark 13. Jesus is looking at two events from a distance, though years apart. They're connected. They're in the same mountain range. The overall message that I don't want you to miss in the midst of all these details in, Matthew, in Mark 13 is this. Jesus calls us to live in light of the end. That's a major message of this chapter. Jesus is calling us to live in light of the end. We'd be here all day for me to unravel every mystery and difficulty in Mark 13, so I'm not going to be able to do that. But I want to point out three major things that I think Jesus teaches. Number one, how the world won't end. Secondly, how the world will end. And then third, how we should live in light of that end. How the world won't end. How the world will end. And then how we should live in light of that. First, how the world won't end. If you look at verses 5 through 23, Jesus is talking about events, a lot of events, that may seem like the end, but are not. Verse 70 says, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Verse 23, so be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Jesus essentially is saying to his disciples, don't be deceived by all these events that are going to happen that seem like the end, but they're not. Let me just mention three of them that Jesus does. He mentions wars and natural disasters. Verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. I mean, in one sense, Jesus' words could describe any century since he was uh, on earth. But particularly, they, were, they, were, they, they addressed the Christians in Rome in the first century who who faced war in their lifetime and earthquakes and famines. And Jesus is saying to them, don't be alarmed by these things. This is now how the world ends. Then Jesus talks about persecution. Verse 9, you must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Again, Jesus' words, I think, apply to any century since he's come the first time. 
The book of Acts is particular evidence of how the Christians in the first century suffered for their faith. They were stoned. They were thrown into prison. They were run out of town. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, we'll even experience persecution by our own family members because we're Christians. Brothers will turn against brothers. Parents will turn against children and vice versa. That's the most terrible persecution of all is our own family members turning against us because we're Christian. And Jesus says this is not the end. It's an opportunity to witness to the gospel because God is sovereign even over this persecution and he so often uses it to advance the gospel. Jesus says there, there will be wars and natural disasters. There will be persecution. He says in verses 14 through 19, there will be days of distress. In verse 14, he uses this phrase, an abomination that causes desolation, which then leads to a time of great distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world. And that phrase, abomination that causes desolation, comes from Daniel 9, where forecasting a time when the, the temple would be desecrated. And, and Daniel 9 was fulfilled in 168 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian general, swept into Jerusalem. He erected an altar to Zeus on the altar of God and sacrificed a pig on it. I mean, it was this, this great moment of, of desecration. And so Jesus is, used, is referring to this phrase from Daniel 9, this historical event, to predict a moment of great desecration and suffering, so great that people would need to flee to the mountains, days that would be dreadful for pregnant mothers, days that would be unequaled, days of distress since the creation of the world. And the question is, when are these days? When do they happen? Many commentators point to the Jewish war in AD 66 to 70 in the first century, when the temple was desecrated, when it was destroyed, and there were days of great distress and suffering. Some people suggest that it's still yet future. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about a man of lawlessness unleashing severe tribulation against God's people. The answer is we're not sure exactly when these days will be fulfilled. Whenever it is, Jesus says, verse 23, be on your guard. Don't despair. Because this is not how the world ends. What I think Jesus is doing here, at a larger level, I think is, is I would suggest, giving us a Christian view of time. Jeffrey Bilbro, in his book, Reading the Times, says that how we view time determines how we respond to current events. How we view, our view of time determines how we respond to current events. So he suggests three different ways that people view time. Some people view time as cyclical. The ancient Greeks viewed time essentially as cyclical. Time was this cycle of fortune and misfortune. Time was defined by, by the reign of a king or emperor, and that just changed over and over. Culture doesn't improve or decline. It's just this cycle. It's a, it's a circle of life, kind of like the Lion King. And if that's your view of time, that time is essentially cyclical, then that means there's really no ultimate or lasting significance to current events, right? And if time is cyclical, what happens now will happen again. I mean, it's not like, don't get worked up over it, right? It's cyclical. It's just what's happening now is going to happen again. It's just one big cycle. Another way that people view time is a, a progressive view of time, and this is very popular today. And this is the view that time is linear. Time is sequential. 
History is making progress. And we'd say, well, that's especially apparent in technology and, and medicine, right? I mean, there, there are all sorts of advances, advances technologically and, and medically, right? That even 10 years ago, we didn't have it. There's clearly progress technologically and medically. And, and, and people would say, well, there's also progress morally and, and progress historically. So people talk about the arc of history. Uh, people would say, well, you're on the wrong side of history. And it's, it's based on this progressive view of time. And if this is the view of time, and this is, this is largely the view of time these days, current events take on this great significance because that's how we know progress is happening, right? So that's why we're so attuned to the news, right? News becomes our morning prayers. Uh, the, the news feed becomes like our devotional because that, like that, that tells us where we are in the world and, and how things are happening. Current events become all important. Jesus gives us another view of time, not cyclical, not progressive, but redemptive. I think that's a view of time that Jesus is presenting here. See, if time is only progressive, then it begs the question, progressing towards what? If time is progressive, and I do think it is, if it's linear and sequential, towards what? To, to what end? And that, I think, is an open question these days. And oftentimes it's answered by whoever's in political office at the, at the present moment. Jesus says that, that time is linear and progressive, but he says it's filled with redemption. Time is marked by God working out his redemptive purposes, and history is moving towards a redemptive end that we'll talk about in a moment. And Jesus says, until that end, there are things that will happen, that indeed must happen, but those things are not the end. I would suggest to you that this gives us a way to read the news. Many have suggested that Christians should approach the news with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Or to update that, your Bible app on your phone right next to your newsfeed. And that gives us, I think, a different perspective on things that are happening. For example, we may read this headline in a newsfeed. Russia fires major missile barrage at Ukraine as combat intensifies. But then side by side, we listen to Jesus' words. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Or perhaps you read this in your, your news feed. Christians in Afghanistan face routine torture. And you put that side by side with Jesus' words. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. Or perhaps you read this headline. Turkey and Syria, earthquake, deaths exceed 28,000. And you read that and you say, oh my goodness, the world is falling apart. And then you read Jesus' words, there will be earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of birth pains. What are birth pains? They're those pains that precede a glorious arrival. Or here's a headline I read just yesterday. The AI arms race is changing everything. And then perhaps you read Jesus' words, four false messiahs will appear and perform signs and wonders. Don't be deceived. You see, my friends, when you see time redemptively, it gives you a whole new perspective. You see, you see things against God's timeline. You, you know that God is in control, and you hear Jesus say, be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. You see, redemptive time relativizes the drama of daily news because Jesus tells us here how things won't end. They won't end this way. And then he goes on, secondly, to tell us then how the world will 
end. In verses 24 through 27, Jesus is describing how the world will end with the return of Jesus Christ. The climax of history, the, the grand finale. If you are watching the fireworks, you look forward to the grand finale, right? Because the grand finale is going to be greater than anything that preceded it. And Jesus' return, my friends, is the grand finale of history, greater than anything that precedes it. In verses 24 and 25, it describes the context of Jesus' return. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's Old Testament language from the prophets describing this cataclysmic collapse of the cosmos. It is imagery of the existing world order going undergoing radical change. Perhaps you might think of it as the darkness and chaos of Genesis 1 before the new creation. One commentator says it's like lights going out in the centers of power in preparation for a new world order. My friends, that new world order comes with the return of Christ, described in verses 26 and 27. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Again, Old Testament language. Jesus, the description of Jesus' return here is all couched in Old Testament language and imagery. And this comes from Daniel 7, which Jim read a moment ago. This return of Christ is a moment of unparalleled power and glory. It's the, the end and climax of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came into this world in humility, missed by so many that was so humble. He came into this world humbly to die on a cross for us. But he will return one day in great power and glory to reign, and every eye will see him. In other words, our Savior is crucified and risen, but that's not the end of the story. He is ascended, and that's not the end of the story. He will return one day. The gospel tells us that Jesus came into this world as a servant to us to lay down his life for us. And Jesus tells us he will return one day as king to bring us home and reign over us. His return will be personal. Son of man will come. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. It will be a personal return. It will be a bodily return. Jesus' return is not just a spiritual return. Acts 1.11 says that Jesus will come back in the same way he went into heaven. His return will be visible. She says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming. Revelation 1.7 says he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So Jesus' return will not happen privately in a corner. It will be a public event for everyone to see. And it will be glorious. He comes in clouds with great power and glory. In the Old Testament, clouds represent the presence of God. Do you remember that moment on Mount Sinai when the glory cloud came down on Mount Sinai? And there was thunder and lightning that made the people tremble. Jesus will come with God's very presence, with power and glory. 
And he will gather his elect from every corner of the world, those suffering, those forgotten, those in despair. He'll gather every last one up of his people and bring us home. That's why the return of Christ is a central hope of the New Testament. It's mentioned 318 times in the New Testament in nearly every book because it is one of the great incentives for living the Christian life. It is the motivation for obedience and perseverance and comfort and hope. I read again Titus 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Why? Because we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How will the world end? How will the ages end? With the return of Christ. I think of that scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings. The ring has been destroyed. Mount Doom is disintegrating. Frodo and Sam are perched in a rock trapped by rivers of lava flowing around them, and there is no escape. Frodo says to Sam, I'm glad to be here with you, here at the end of all things. Hopes fail. An end comes. We are lost in ruin and downfall, and there is no escape. Tolkien writes, all around them, the earth gaped, and from deep rifts and pits, smoke and fumes leaped up. Behind them, the mountains convulsed. Great rents opened in its side. Slow rivers of fire came down the long slopes towards them. Soon they would be engulfed. What seemed like the end had arrived, and all seemed lost. Then if you've seen the movie, you've read the book, you know, here the eagle arrives carrying Gandalf on his back. And Tolkien writes, and so it was, that Gwahir saw Sam and Frodo with his keen, far-seeing eyes as down the wild wind he came. And there in the great peril of the skies, he circled in the air. Two small dark figures forlorn, hand in hand upon a little hill, while the world shook upon under them, and gasps and rivers of fire drew near, down swept Gahir, and the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away out of the darkness and the fire. Jesus says that there will be darkness and fire in this world, but that's not how the world ends. Like Gandalf riding on eagles, Jesus will come riding on the clouds with great power and glory. This is how the world ends, with the return of Christ coming to bring his people home. Now, I know perhaps you sit here and you think, this is fantastical. I mean, how, how do you believe this? Do you really believe this? It, it seems like such an unlikely scenario. I mean, it seems scientifically implausible. But I remind you that before the pandemic happened, very few people imagined that there would be a worldwide pandemic. And we were introduced to, the, to this word. It was like repeated over and over again, unprecedented. Right? We became acquainted with unprecedented things, things that, things that never had never happened before. Before Hurricane Sandy hit this area, no one was prepared for a hurricane. In, in this area, Jesus says he'll come like a thief in the night, which is a way of saying he breaks all paradigms. It's unprecedented. He comes completely unexpected, without warning. So then lastly, how should we live? then how should we live in light of this end? 
There are 19 imperatives in this chapter, and most of them have to do with watching or being vigilant or being on guard. Verse 5, Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 37, Jesus says, I say to everyone, watch. Living in light of the end doesn't mean figuring out dates and timetables. A lot of people, that's how they spend their time, figuring out dates and timetables. That, that, that is a misguided effort, Jesus says. Living in light of the end is about watchfulness and vigilance. Why? Verse 32, Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And I know we could have a lengthy and philosophical debate about how Jesus could be the truly the Son of God, but not know the day of his return. But I think the, the, the short answer is a, it's a mystery of his humanity and deity. Jesus took on limitations in his humanity. But besides that, that's not the point of what Jesus is saying. The point of Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is it doesn't make sense to try and figure out a date or a timetable because no one knows the day or the hour. Therefore, the best way to live in light of Jesus' return is vigilance, watchfulness. Like a man who goes away and puts his servants in charge, including a doorkeeper. This doorkeeper whose sole responsibility is to watch for the return of his master and be ready to open the door. Whether the master comes in the morning or evening or middle of the night, this doorkeeper's sole responsibility is to be vigilant. And Jesus says Christians are to be just like that doorkeeper, to be watchful and vigilant. That doesn't mean we quit our jobs. It doesn't mean we, we give up making long-term plans or suddenly initiate 24-hour, round-the-clock prayer meetings. I would suggest to you that maybe it's a little bit like being pregnant or expecting a baby, and a lot of us know exactly what that's like. There are preparations that you make. It doesn't mean you quit your job. It doesn't mean you stop doing, your, doing life and, and running your errands. But you know, it's never too far out of the back of your mind. There, there is a day coming. There is an arrival coming that casts its light over everything. And that's what it's like to be vigilant and watchful. Reuters carried this news story recently. I read it this week about a retired Marine who has spent 27 years waiting for his sweetheart to return. Every Valentine's Day, 58-year-old Esteban Perez stands on a street corner dressed in his military garb in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, with flowers hoping that Cecilia, the woman he met in a nightclub in 1996, will show up. At the time, he fell in love, and they dated for two months before Cecilia ended the relationship. Esteban says, I am still single. I have no children. I have never married, and I've never looked for another girl because I would never see in any other girl what I saw in Cecilia. So he dresses up. And comes to the street, same street corner on Valentine's Day, year after year, for the last 27 years, hoping that she will show up. The locals have mixed opinions. One says, he's very handsome in his suit. She's missing out. Another says, let him have some therapy. It's been 25 years. I'm not sure Cecilia is coming back. And perhaps some people feel that way about Jesus because it's been over 2,000 years. But we're talking about our Savior, who is crucified, who is risen, who ascended, and made this promise that is echoed all through the New Testament that he will come back. 
And the closing words of the New Testament are the words, Come, Lord Jesus. How do we live in light of his return? By being watchful and vigilant. Lord Shaftesbury, a great English social reformer in the 1800s, worked tirelessly on behalf of the poor, working for social reform, particularly for improved living conditions for women and children and the mentally ill. He said near the end of his life, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. He lived with intentionality and urgency and vigilance because he knew his Savior was returning. What does it mean to live in light of Jesus' return? It means doing what Jesus would have you to be doing when he returns. It means not doing anything that you would be afraid to do if you knew that Jesus was coming in an hour. It means not falling asleep spiritually. It means reading the times redemptively. It means living in a way that you can meet him unashamed. It means stewarding your resources so that when he comes, you can hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus calls us to live in light of his return. Lord Jesus, help us to be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this instruction on how to live, on how to view these times, on how to have the hope that the world ends, not in despair, but in glory, with the return of your Son, Jesus Christ, in power and glory. Lord, would you show us what it means in our lives to live with watchfulness, and vigilance. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.